EOS guided liver biopsy provides the most comfortable means of obtaining a liver sample for a patient. And that's really important. Just because it used to be done away for literally 60 years doesn't mean that's the way it ought to be done um, in the future. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode 10 with our physician guest, David Deal from Geisinger Health in Danville, Pennsylvania, talking to us about EUS-guided liver biopsy. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Deal, welcome to Endocast. Thanks for having me. It's great. It's a pleasure. In fact, I grew up, for you listeners out there, uh, not that far from here, a couple hours, and now I'm in Los Angeles, and I have the opportunity to fly back home to interview Dr. Deal, who got his start in California, so quite a bit of crossover. For those of you that don't know Dr. Deal, which I can't imagine there's many out there, but I will introduce him the best I can. He's got quite a long title. Dr. Deal is the Chief of Interventional Endoscopy and the Advanced Fellowship Program Director at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. Dr. Deal is also the current Vice President of the PASG, which is the Pennsylvania Society of Gastroenterology. And on a personal interest level, I read that you're quite the fan of old classic cars. This is true. And if I have a patient... Um, who's interested in cars too, it, it kind of delays my procedures because I find myself just chatting with them about cars. So on that note, what's your favorite classic car? You know, I, when I was in LA, I actually had like four old cars. And when I moved to New York City, I had to dissolve the collection. So I, I gave some away. Um, I sold one. It was a 62 Lincoln. I sold that to a friend for $100. And I'm sad I don't have those cars anymore. Yeah, unless you're on Jerry Seinfeld status in New York City, it's kind of hard to keep a, uh, a wide collection of, of classic cars. Yes, and you know, it was nice actually not having a car in the entire seven years I was living in New York. So that was nice. Really nice, uh, and probably saved quite a bit of money that way, too. Yeah. So I'd like to learn a little bit more just about you, Dr. Deal, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up, uh, and the audience loves to hear about this stuff. So. Okay. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. My dad uh, is, was a, a dentist, and he grew up in New York City, but he's a warm-weather guy. So he, as soon as he could, after he graduated from dental school, he moved to Los Angeles. So that's where I was born and raised and loved being there and kind of UCLA all the way. I was undergrad, residency, and attending at UCLA. I did GI fellowship in San Francisco, and I really love San Francisco also. And then after a while, um, there was an opportunity to um, leave, and uh, we went to New York. My, my wife uh, at the time was an opera singer, so she suggested, why don't we go to New York, which is like opera central. So we moved to New York City, and I was uh, at Bellevue Hospital. I was chief of endoscopy there and uh, was in New York for seven years and really enjoyed, really, really enjoyed living there. Um, then there was an opportunity to come here, um, they were looking for an EUS specialist. So there was a bit of a leap of faith coming out to Danville, Pennsylvania, a place I knew nothing about. 
but I've been here 13 years. It's been wonderful. It's a well-organized hospital, um, and I've been able to help build a, a wonderful interventional endoscopy program. We now have two fellows per year that we're training, and uh, several colleagues in the system doing advanced endoscopy. Great story. I think I did the exact same thing. It's just that I went to the West Coast, having grown up over here, um, and UCLA is near and dear to my heart. In fact, I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Muthasami uh, in a couple weeks as well, so I'll be sure to, uh, to give him your Please. best. Yeah. Yep. So today we're here to talk a little bit more about EUS-guided liver biopsy. First question I have for you, what's new in the world of research in regards to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH? Well, um, we know that for fatty liver disease, it's an it's a ever-increasing number of patients with this. The percentage of obese patients in the United States is constantly increasing. And the number of patients who are needing transplant from fatty liver-associated disease is also increasing. So it's since they uh, came up with a cure for hepatitis C, fatty liver, and NASH is replacing that as a need for transplant. So um, there is a lot of research going on in new pharmaceuticals, all still fairly investigational, but there's a lot of work, a lot of interest in developing uh, treatments, pharmaceutical treatments for, for this condition. Well put, and obviously the best route for a lot of these patients starts with getting a good quality tissue diagnosis. How did you first work with your hepatology colleagues to create that referral pathway that was for the right patients? Well, if I let me go back a little bit. I remember, so when I was a fellow, we were trained in how to do percutaneous liver biopsy, which was never a fun procedure. It involved taking a large needle and jamming into someone's side. And so it was, it was never pleasant. The patient was not sedated and... Um, a little, you always felt like, is this the case I'm going to hit something that I shouldn't be hitting? Um, and there's been a trend for the liver biopsies to go away from GI and go to interventional radiology. When I came to this institution, we had a, an excellent uh, physician assistant who did all the liver biopsies in GI clinic. He was very, really good at doing them. He retired, and at that point, there was no one around that was interested in doing liver biopsy, so of course they went to interventional radiology. Um, I got interested in in doing EUS guided liver biopsies um, after reading a paper by Dr. Stavropoulos, where he used a regular 19 gauge FNA needle and had good results using that. And that was it. Sort of turned on a light bulb in my head that wow, I can get liver biopsies with a technique that I'm already doing. And uh, I just talked to, at the time, uh, we had uh, one hepatologist, and I said, uh, if instead of sending the patient to IR, do you mind sending them to me, and I'll do an U.S. guided liver biopsy. And he was completely on board with that, and had no problems with that. Since that time, we've actually added three other hepatologists here at the main campus, and they all are agreeable uh, to the approach of the U.S. guided liver biopsy. So... Um, they have a busy liver clinic. Of course, they use FibroScan and other non-invasive methods to assess fibrosis, which is important. But there remains uh, a strong demand for the need for liver biopsy, and we're um, answering that call and doing those procedures. 
Well put. And when you had that conversation with your hepatologist many years ago, there was not a wealth of data, and that's since changed as well, and you're responsible for some of that data. So definitely want to get to that question as well. But first, pre-procedure, how do you communicate with the patients? And do you routinely consent those patients? I really enjoy the pre-procedure interaction with the patient regarding a liver biopsy. First of all, I tell them that I am, we are going to do a liver biopsy in the best possible way, uh, the most comfortable way possible for them. And I often describe, well, the way we used to do it is we would just find a spot on the side and, and stick a needle in there. But here you're going to be sedated, you'll be completely comfortable, it's very safe, and we're going to get excellent specimens. And so I do consent them um, for uh, the procedure specifically. And I, I mentioned to them that uh, the one adverse effect of liver biopsy, no matter how it's done, is bleeding, but that the bleeding rate is low. And I personally believe that the bleeding rate is lower with EOS-guided approach uh, than the other approaches. Dr. Deal, obviously, you know, bedside manners are super important, and the way that you explain to patients probably puts them at ease more than, more than probably better than I've heard in most cases. So. Yeah, they feel... They feel calm after I tell them that, even though obviously they're going to have to have a liver biopsy, but if they understand this is the best way to do it, uh, they're happy about that. So um, I would like to make a comment about the adverse effect of bleeding after liver biopsy. So bleeding is an adverse effect of any means of liver biopsy. Uh, I think one of the advantages of EOS guided liver biopsy is it's real-time ultrasound guided. I am seeing the needle. I'm actively avoiding vessels, so I feel it's safe. You mentioned publishing on this topic, and in fact, 2015, you published some great data in Endoscopy International, and you've performed over 2,000 EUS-guided liver biopsies. Can you describe the technique that you published on in 2015? Sure. So the technique has actually changed over the years. I think one of the goals of my research is to try to figure out what is the best method for doing EUS-guided liver biopsy and what method is most reproducible. So if different people are doing it, they, they get great results. So initially, uh, it was a regular 19-gauge FNA needle. Um, we used full suction, um, but the, we did not prime the needle with saline or heparin. And we did uh, seven to 10 passes. Uh, we would either do uh, one lobe only or both lobes. And we still got very good results. The next step that was a, a, a very momentous uh, change was when the FNB needles came out. With the FNB needles, uh, we were seeing uh, such, we were getting great results before, and these um, exceeded those in every metric. Uh, one thing that can happen with liver biopsies is fragmentation, so you have a piece, uh, a core of liver, but it breaks into small fragments like two millimeters. What you want is a 10, 15, 20 millimeter uh, core of liver. And with the, with the FNB needle, uh, we were finding consistently we we're getting cores with, with very low fragmentation. So once that needle became available, it sort of, it changed the landscape for me as to uh, what needle I used for that procedure. So as a, a backup question to that, 
Did that change the conversation that you had with your pathologist? I mean, what does that look like? So, uh, yeah, it's a good question. So we're blessed of having uh, two or three GI, uh, dedicated GI pathologists who are very comfortable looking at liver specimens and interpret all the liver biopsies. So for any pathologist, um, having a long core is really the key. Um, if they have a long core, they're able to assess the portal triads well and look at the liver in between. So anything that we can do to deliver consistently long cores, uh, they're pleased with. Um, we're using a 19-gauge needle. I know for interventional radiology, they're using generally an 18-gauge needle, which is pretty close. Occasionally a 16-gauge needle, but I will 16-gauge needle is how it used to be done. Um, and in some ways is, is the standard, but 18-gauge uh, needle provides good specimens, and our, our pathologists are pleased with the lengths of the specimens that we get. And they're actually better than the true-cut uh, percutaneous biopsies that they're getting, and, and actually much better than the transjugular biopsies, which tend to be smaller pieces. So you, you kind of led me to my next question. You know, how does EUS liver biopsy compare with the transjugular approach? And I think you already mentioned the, the percutaneous approach, but how does it compare with transjugular? So the transjugular for us, we, we don't do it unless the person has a coagulopathy. So it's a uh, EUS guided biopsies contraindication. Or if uh, the patient has known cirrhosis and portal pressures are required. Then those patients, we will send them to IR for its transjugular biopsy. The needles they use, um, I think, are 18 uh, gauge, and they're, they're not core needles. They're not FNB needles. They're FNA needles. And I've seen the specimens, and, and they're not long cores, of course. Granted, many of those patients are cirrhotic, so there will be fragmentation. So... Uh, the, the transjugular approach is, is for a select number of patients. I will say that um, there's some interesting developments on portal pressure measurement that can be done by EOS guidance, and I think that's also that's going to change the landscape further. I think we'll be we in interventional endoscopy, the endoscopers, are going to be doing portal pressure measurements, um, usually with a liver biopsy, but it could be without a liver biopsy instead of the transjugular method. And uh, I think our, I know our results will be very accurate and clearly more easily accepted by patients because it's, it's an easier uh, procedure for them. Couldn't agree more. Interventional EUS is continuing to expand and evolve, and the next five to ten years is going to be really interesting in that space. Other physicians have expressed this concept of capturing a global picture with EUS when assessing GI disease, specifically upper GI disease. On that note, when and why would you biopsy both lobes of the liver? Um, for uh, NASH-related type liver disease, uh, it's probably useful to biopsy both lobes. It, it reduces sampling error. We did a study that compared findings in the left and right, and there are some differences in the histologic findings between the lobes, which is, so by doing both lobes, it minimizes sampling error. For other diseases, um, bilobar biopsy is probably less important, and we can do monolobar. Another thing, uh, since you're talking about 
for gut diseases. The real win uh, for doing a U.S. liver biopsy is a patient who needs an endoscopy in addition to a liver biopsy, or perhaps they need an endoscopic ultrasound in addition to a liver biopsy. And this is more frequent than you would think. I mean, someone has reflux, Barrett's, and they also need a liver biopsy. Um, then you can do an EGD and an EOS liver, liver biopsy at the same setting, saving, it's much more convenient for the patient and it saves money for the health system. So um, that scenario comes up a lot. And clearly, um, uh, th those patients are best managed by the combination approach. That being said, we still are doing uh, EOS liver biopsies for the single indication of the liver biopsy and not necessarily because the patient needs an EGD also. So and that takes me back to what you had mentioned earlier. It's important to consent those patients as well ahead of time, even if you may not do EUS liver biopsy. That's right. So um, occasionally we'll get an EUS referral, uh, rule out cholelodocalithiasis, or investigate elevated liver tests with a dilated bile duct. And if we do not find a stone, if we do not find the dilation, we will, on the same setting, do the liver biopsy. So yes, we consent the patient, and it saves a step, and it, it speeds up the, the workup so, so much. So rather than they have to go back to the liver clinic and then come back and do a liver biopsy, we're taking care of it all at the same time. So, well put. I, I think my next question, and I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here, is once you have good quality tissue, what's next for those patients? I mean, what, what happens, what's the next in, in the patient algorithm for those patients? After that, they return to the liver clinic uh, where they're followed up by the hepatologist who comes up with a, a treatment plan um, for, um, it could be often is NASH. Um, if it's not NASH, it's some other sort of uh, parenchymal liver disease. And so the treatment is, is uh, dictated by the by the hepatology team. So uh, we're part of the equation. We're not the, the end step, but uh, we are, it's, the thing I like about it also is we're an internal referral. So it's one of our colleagues referring to us for the liver biopsy, and we refer back to our colleague. So they're not going out of the department. So earlier you mentioned when you first went to your hepatology colleagues, they were quite open to you doing EUS-guided liver biopsy. I can venture to say that's probably not the case in every hospital throughout the country. I've heard that. So based on that, if a physician in a community hospital was interested in starting an EUS-guided liver biopsy program, what guidance or suggestions would you have for them? I would, uh, I would do, I mean, so this, these, at this point, this will be done by an endosonographer who's comfortable with uh, needle biopsy. So they're already biopsying the pancreas, they're biopsying lymph nodes, even um, liver lesions, typically with a 22-gauge needle, a 25-gauge needle. So this is a person who's comfortable with uh, using a needle and, and directing it into to organs. The liver is a very large target. So if anything, it's almost easier to biopsy the liver than, say, a pancreatic mass in some cases. So these people have the skill set to, to, to make this happen. The safety factor of positively identifying the left lobe of the liver instead of making sure it's not the spleen, the right lobe is, is not, uh, not an issue. Um, and if that's done, they could, I believe, safely do a liver biopsy. And then they uh, should also uh, talk to the pathology department, 
talked to them saying that we're going to be doing uh, 19 gauge liver biopsies and work out uh, an arrangement for the specimen. Now, when we started doing this, our pathology department was very involved in how to handle that specimen in the best possible way. So a lot of their suggestions we've incorporated in how we handle the specimen. It's important not to, not to manipulate it too much, just put it right into formalin. The technician in the pathology department who is receiving the specimen will know how to, to handle these specimens. They're used to small specimens. These are not you know, microscopic specimens. They're, they're pretty good-sized specimens. Well put. You know, obviously, the collaborative approach uh, is so important. So continuing to pull the hepatologist in to the algorithm and also the pathologist seems like it's probably a good place to start. Yep. So I'll steal a line out of uh, ESPN when I ask you, uh, do you have any parting shots uh, as far as EUS guided liver pipes? Anything that you want people just to remember uh, as we wrap up this podcast session, session, which has been incredible, by the way. I'm so glad I made the trip to finally meet you. And I know we've been chatting over social media a little bit, but it's great to finally meet you in person. Thanks. EUS guided liver biopsy provides the most comfortable means of obtaining a liver sample for a patient. And that's really important. Just because it used to be done away for literally 60 years doesn't mean that's the way it ought to be done um, in the future. It's extremely safe. Um, proper organ identification is key. And um, certainly if, if a patient needs a liver biopsy and in addition to an endoscopic procedure or an EUS procedure is the most efficient, effective uh, way to go. Great. Thank you once again, Dr. Deal, for coming on to Endocast, and I'm excited to get this one out. People are really, really going to enjoy this and learn a lot from you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose Gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sell, buy, or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France and by prescription only. Thank you.